re-verbalizing some of the things that I had modeled, like, okay, I can be flexible today. So when I think about this, it's in the moment and out of the moment, how can I model this, how I'm regulating myself, which means being in tune when you're dysregulated and how you're shifting so that you can teach your kids not only in the moments that they are stressed, but they can, they can see it out of the moment. Welcome to Working Mom Narrow. Oh, fuck. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Working Mom Hour. I'm Erica. And I'm Madeline. We're working moms, business partners, and friends with kids at different ages and stages. We know moms tend to get more done in an hour than the average human, yet are often misunderstood and underappreciated in the workplace. We are here to shine a light on the working mom experience to help ourselves and others step into and advocate for the superpower. We are not experts. We're two women who have been there and are still there, kids, clients, and all. Join us as we cultivate more joy in working motherhood at the corner of calm and chaos. On today's episode of Working Mom Hour, we welcome nervous system practitioner, speech and language pathologist, and expert in early childhood development, Stephanie Rosenfield. Stephanie has been on a transformative journey from feeling overwhelmed and anxious in motherhood to finding joy, calm, and purpose, which may sound a little familiar, no? Yes. She's on a mission to help other moms enjoy motherhood and feel empowered in their lives, and she's here to share her insights, experiences, and the tools that have changed her life. Stephanie's advice has been featured on the Today Show, Pop Sugar, and Scary Mommy. So without further ado, let's dive into this valuable conversation with Stephanie. Stephanie, welcome to Working Mom Hour. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are ready for this conversation. So you are an expert in understanding the nervous system, which is fascinating. Such a huge component of parenting. And I'm so glad we're talking about it. Let's start with the basics, right? So what is the nervous system and how is it regulated? So essentially, I'm going to try to explain this in terms that aren't super scientific that are relatable to our conversation today. So essentially, I think of our nervous system as our body's wiring. It's our electrical wiring. And essentially, our nervous system transmits messages from our body to our brain. And I'll explain the different parts of the nervous system. If you think of a family tree that has like the name at the top, my last name, Rosenfield, your last name, we can put the top as the nervous system. And then under that, we have two parts of the nervous system, which is the central nervous system, which is the center part of our body, our brain and our spinal cord, and then the peripheral nervous system, which is the periphery, our organs and our muscle tissue. Within the peripheral nervous system, two little bit more, two more branches, we have the somatic, which is our on-purpose movements, and the autonomic, which is automatic movements, bladder, pupil contraction all of the things, our digestion that our body does automatically. I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about the autonomic system, and I'll tell you why in a moment. 
within the autonomic nervous system, if you're sticking with yep. me so far, we're here. two more branches. You're here. Okay. Two more branches, which is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And you can think of the sympathetic as your fight or flight, if you've heard of that before, your get up and go, your arousal. And the parasympathetic as rest and digest, or low parasympathetic as freeze, or, you know, a little bit, I would say depressed, like down. I'll give you a story to help relate why we're talking about this today. I had a client who came to me, and this may sound familiar in your home. It's happened in my home. She talked about she was picking her two kids up from after school. She had just gotten done a busy day of work. She were picking her kids up, rushing home to get dinner. Kids bathe, everyone down for bed by 7.30. She gets home and her younger one starts screaming, mommy, pick me up, while she's trying to get the burgers on the grill and everything on the table. Her older one is melting that she's hungry and going into the pantry for a snack. And in the background, the TV's blaring and all this mom wanted to do was get dinner on the table to get the night going. In this moment, this kid's can you so relate much. to that type of situation? Last night. Keep yeah. going. Yes. <laughs> I'm yes. sweating. Yeah. Yes. So literally, you're sweating. So in that moment, when I talk about that, like in for you guys physically, what's happening? You're sweating. What else? Like breathing heavier. I feel like racing thoughts. I'm holding my breath. Literally, I hold it in my stomach. I'm holding my breath. Yeah. So essentially in that moment, what's happening is your autonomic nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system is being activated. You're being aroused, like that high anxiety, the racing thoughts, the on the defense. And this is because your body is perceiving a threat and sending the message to your brain like danger. And this is meant to work for us, our nervous system, right? If there is a lion chasing us, we want to run. If someone's about to swerve into us in on the highway, we want to move. So essentially, this is supposed to be activated, but it's being overly activated by stressful situations that we're all dealing with on the day-to-day with our kids and family. So that's a brief description of the nervous system and why we're talking about it today. Now, what are the effects of it being overly activated? Like what's happening to society? (laughs) That's a really great question. So you can think about it in that moment. This mom came to me and she's like, I'm yelling, I'm threatening, I'm blaming, I'm acting in ways that I don't want to react. It's not the model that I want to be to my kids. I am interpreting my kids as more difficult. It's just creating so much stress, unease and stress. And then afterwards she relayed, I just feel so guilty. I check out on my phone and I scroll and that's like the low parasympathetic being activated, right? That like shut down. She didn't want to engage and play with her kids on the floor after dinner because she was feeling so guilty about what happened. So I think on a smaller scale, the effects are things that you can see happening in your homes, in your relationships. Like we're not able to control our emotions and like operate in the way we want to operate because this is just like happening in our bodies and it's like kind of taking over. Is that right? Yeah. And I can go into how the nervous system is regulated or what that even means. So your a regulated nervous system is essentially feeling safe, in control, the ability to problem solve. So I'm presented with this stressful situation, but my heart is at a normal Right. My jaw isn't clenched. I don't feel that heat rise. I'm in control. And I like to differentiate this from like calm because I think there's a lot of messaging out there like 
each of you get this like calm and control. Like it's not about being Zen master over here, having no care in the world. However, it's about being able to approach the situation in a way that you feel good about afterwards, that you have control over. So regulated essentially means if you look at the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, I'm putting my hands up here, this middle part, a window of tolerance where you're feeling connected and safe. You can engage, you can listen. And so how I work with clients and what we try to do is increase that window so that you can flexibly move. Because again, the goal isn't to always be in that window of regulated. That's not realistic. I'm not. (laughs) No one I know is. It's to be able to flexibly move throughout the sympathetic, parasympathetic into that window of tolerance more ease, with more ease, if that makes sense. I have so many questions and I know we're going to get into a lot of this. I have a lot of questions about like how we expand that and how we can model this and strategies and like how we can help our kids and all of that. Who is most, and my guess is women may be most susceptible to this, like being in overdrive when it comes to emotional regulation. Is that the case? And why might that be? Like why do women struggle to feel in our bodies? We had a guest on maybe last season who was lovely. Her name was Lizzie Langston. And I remember this quote, she said like, women have been disembodied for so long that it's like hard to feel in our bodies. I love that idea. And honestly, I think it's men and women. It's just, we're both, we're also different, but I think everyone experiences. Yeah. Like I think everyone experiences it. It may look different. It may be some people may be more prone to the shutdown versus the reactivity. But I think women in particular, we were never taught, we were never told that we had a body. I know for myself before I started this and so many of my clients and friends is that we're walking around with this, just thinking we're a brain, constantly thinking, constantly trying to execute, get things done that we don't even realize that we have a body or that there are things happening within our body that are important right? It's like, oh, I have a stomach ache. Let me take some medicine, right? It's, it's more so how can I fix this, this ease? There's something wrong versus maybe it's, it's giving me information and telling me something. So when I start with clients, one of the first things that I do with them is have them identify the sensations and what they're feeling in their body in these stressful moments, because we can't change how we're going to react or start to regulate if we don't recognize that we're even feeling something. So I have them track literally on a piece of paper. What do you notice in the morning when you wake up? What happens in your body or in your jaw? Right before, when in that situation with those kids, just like you described to me, what's happening? You might, I feel rising, I'm clenching, and it's different for everybody. So once we can recognize or even, and it takes practice. I have people who are like, I don't even know. Like, what does that mean? I feel something like that's, I don't feel anything. So the first step is really identifying what am I feeling? And this is years and years of most of us, especially women, ignoring or not even noticing that we are feeling something. Do you like the book, The Body Keeps the Score? Love that book. It was one of my first reads when I started to get into this a couple years ago. Oh, he's wonderful. You mentioned... Speaking of books, being a fan also of the whole brain child, which we've also heard about. And I know it talks about how kids' brains are wired and how 
they mature or how kids' brains mature. Would you be willing to give us an overview of what's happening in our kids' brains and why it can be a challenge to parents through, like when they're feeling dysregulated? Yes. I love speaking about Dan Siegel and his work. And essentially, for those of you who aren't familiar, he's a child psychologist or psychiatrist who really talks about the application of neuroscience to help parents promote social and emotional development with their kids. And I think that this is so important to understand because unless we understand how our kids' brains develop, it's really hard to parent them because we're over here assuming they're X years old, they shouldn't be doing Y, right? He's in third grade, he shouldn't be melting down or refusing to go to baseball. They're this age. So one of the things I work with parents about, and I love this question, is once we can understand what's supposed to be happening, we can have more compassion and understanding, which then allows us to parent more in a way that we're aligned with. So essentially, he talks about the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. And the upstairs brain is that cortex, the thinking. We can think about that in my, you know, as my sensory, my nervous system overview, like the central, you know, the central nervous system, your brain. And this is where we can problem solve. We can think rationally. We're really in control. And he calls the more impulsive brain the downstairs brain. At birth, the downstairs brain is what is intact. Our baby, you know, the crying because they're hungry, the the reactionary brain. And essentially, throughout their childhood, up until they're 25, the upstairs brain is under construction. It is very vulnerable, the upstairs brain, to being hijacked by this impulsive brain. We can think about us in a situation where, in that situation with my client where she came home from dinner and she was being hijacked by her impulsive brain too. So for our kids, it's very likely. So the idea that they should be able to think rationally or be in control of their emotional responses or make good choices isn't a realistic expectation. So while this can be really frustrating for parents, right? Like, why can't they just wait for dinner? Like all these things, it can be really frustrating for parents. It's very normal. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them or you, right? A lot of us have the thoughts, what am I doing wrong here? There's something wrong with them. So just understanding what's happening can be really helpful. And I can give you another example of a client. One of my clients has a daughter who's in second grade and she... It was Sunday and it was time to go to gymnastics. And our daughter loves gymnastics. This particular Sunday, she was refusing to go to gymnastics. She was getting really upset about it. My client, and you know, she would normally do is do threaten, but you love gymnastics. Try to convince, hey, if you get in the car, I'll give you some gummies, bribe, a lot of these things. And, And it wasn't working. In fact, it was making her daughter more, more upset. So we got on the call and we really talked about this experience, her brain, or the fact that her rational brain is offline. So trying to approach it rationally won't work. And just being able to sit with her through the experience, and I can go into co-regulation in a little bit, to be able to sit with her in this experience, that mom feeling in her window of tolerance, like, this is okay, I can manage this, nothing has gone wrong. And what she noticed was that her daughter was able to move through it a lot quicker because the mom was modeling and she was accepting it and she wasn't trying to fight it. And she had the understanding of the neuroscience behind what was going on. So that's my quick overview of Dan Siegel. It's a great book. I remember reading it early on. 
in my parenting. We'll link it in the show notes because it really is an interesting book. And I like the upstairs. It just also very much brings it to a level that you can understand the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. I have a quick question because this is just a topic that we continue to have sort of thread through a lot of our conversations around technology's impact on our kiddos and how potentially, as we're talking about the upstairs brain still forming and the downstairs brain hijacking and really taking over the desire to continue with technology and games and video games and social media. How are you noticing in your work technology impacting our kiddos' nervous systems, if it is at all? This is such a fabulous question and one that I'm constantly educating myself around too. Most of my clients are parents with younger kids. So I would say fifth or sixth grade or younger. So they're really just dipping their toe into this experience of figuring out what is best for me and my family. How can I say no to, because we don't want to have the phone or social media, how can I say no to that? With my clients, I haven't really had the experience yet because they're younger of that. But what I do know from reading, and again, I'm I'm constantly educating myself on this, is that yes, our kids are reacting from their impulsive brain most often. So if they are on social media, if they are on TikTok or Instagram, or they are seeing something or posting something or responding to something, that it is having this impact because of how their brain is developing. And I think that there's more and more research coming out now about how there is no positive. There is no positive effect. I think I read somewhere too, even for us as adults, even if you're following puppy accounts, solely puppy (laughs) accounts, you're you're not getting off feeling better. Like you could be like really like liking the content, but you're still getting off. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that was not a good use of time or energy. Yeah. Yeah. What I recommend to the parents that I'm working with right now is getting together with the stakeholders, their partner, whoever it is, and deciding what do we think as a family, what's best for us, what are we comfortable saying yes to or no to, or what's our in-between, and how can we communicate that in an age-appropriate way to our kids and why? Good advice. I did have a quick question. I was in a classroom, one of my daughter's classrooms yesterday, and I noticed just how frequently the teacher was redirecting and like the way in which she was redirecting. And I think in general, it was fine, but it was, it was a lot of redirection, a lot of the day or the hour I was there and not in like the gentlest of ways. And so I was curious, like, I don't know if you have knowledge about this, but like, are there ways we should redirect so as not to like flip on a switch in the kids' brains? Is it just like modeling? I think like a lot of times redirecting in like a classroom setting, you're trying to flip on a switch, like get some motivation, like to like listen or do the thing or stop doing the thing or whatever. Like you need them to like snap into attention. But is that like problematic for our kids that that's happening every day? Are they getting numb to the direction? Like, do you have any general thoughts on that? That's a really great question. And it it shows such a level of awareness around like how other people are speaking to our kids and how they are trying to motivate them. And I noticed this too, when I go into volunteer, just the different ways that 
you have to think about it, right? The school system, the public school system in particular was created many, many, many years ago when our kids, you know, I think around the industrial revolution, when our kids were going to school to then be work in factories. Right. And um, it hasn't really like, you know, stuff hasn't really shifted that much since in terms of the, right. So it's a system that I like to believe is doing the best that they can and has, you know, depending on the, you know, a lot of teacher development and teachers are constantly trying to learn the best ways to interact with our kids. I think that's a tricky question. I would ask you, what did you notice? Like what kind of redirection? What was the tone? What was the direction? What was she saying? Like, again, I just want to reiterate that I thought this teacher was doing a great job with classroom management. I do think there's like sort of an old school air towards like guilt and shame a little bit. Like, I've been telling you, pick up that pencil, like, you know, just sort of like that type of vibe. So yeah, that's what I witnessed. What I would say or what I would, now again, I'm not quite sure the effect on the nervous system. I'm not quite sure the effect of that, but I do know I used to be a speech therapist. So with a background in like childhood development, a way to get our kids to listen is much like the way to get us to listen. You can imagine, let's say you like to use this example, you're watching a season finale of a show on Netflix or something, and you're really into it. And your husband or partner, whoever's speaking to you from behind saying something, and you're really into this show, can't really split your attention. And then all of a sudden, this person comes up to you and was like, I told you it's time to go like very harshly, like, whoa. And all you were doing was like paying attention to something else. So, right. So I like to ask clients in that situation, okay, imagine how would you like your partner to approach you in that situation? What would you like them to say? How would you like them to act? Their nonverbal cues, maybe some, hey, like touch you on the shoulder, make eye contact, use a gentle tone, the expression on their face, all the nonverbal. Hey, I know you're really into the show. I told my mom we'd be there at 3.30. Like, let's how can we eat something like, like that? Help them feel seen, join them in whatever they're doing for a second and then redirect. Again, I can imagine it can enlist some like, I'm doing this wrong. I'm being singled out. You know, it's like those. And again, I, I have a client whose teacher uses this like behavioral chart and the kids can see if they're in red or green or yellow and in front of everyone. And I'm like, oh, like all these kids can see it. And again, so I would just say being able to think about how can we get our kids to listen in a different way, in a way that we as adults and humans would want to be spoken to also? And I think we know more now you're triggering memories of like getting your name written on the board. It was a shame tactic when we were younger with teachers. And I think sometimes the older teachers stick with that tactic. We've had some great teachers with our kiddos. My kiddos both have ADHD. My son in particular will sort of go off into his own world, which we call his like imagination land. And his teachers have been really great. We've just mentioned like, hey, if you notice he's not with you, a little tap on the shoulder, like, uh, hey, how are you doing? You know, like just very gentle. He's a touch kid and they have tools in the classroom to help keep their attention. But I also think it's difficult sometimes. I mean, I remember my dad, like if we hit a certain decibel of play, we could have been laughing, my sisters and I, and it was like nails like, on a chocolate board. Down, shut him down. For my dad. Yeah, exactly. And so we would joke around that we couldn't have fun around him because oh, he couldn't handle the noise, the noise. Yeah, exactly. I can relate to that. 
But I feel like dysregulation, is that the right word for it, is a little contagious, right? So like if you're in a classroom of kiddos and the teachers up here, the kids are going to match the teacher's energy and vibe and same with in the household. So I'm also curious, Stephanie, you mentioned, is it true we share a nervous system with our kiddos? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I would say we don't necessarily share, but we do co-regulate. Like you said about that teacher, we mirror. As humans, we play off each other. So how someone around us feels or behaves affects us. You could imagine that mom from the beginning of my story, her kid's behavior affected her and she started to mirror it when she responded. So co-regulation, we, as parents, we've been doing it without even knowing that we do it. You can think your baby cries and you meet their needs with, do I change your diaper? Do I, how can I soothe you? Do I give you food? So essentially co-regulation is helping another person regulate their system. So that mom that I explained, the gymnast example too, what she was doing was co-regulating that second time when she noticed, okay, my calming presence, me being even will actually help her even out her system. And there is neuroscience behind this. It's called the mirror neurons. And when we see something, we mirror it. Through co-regulation is how we teach self-regulation. So younger years, modeling the regulation. And I would say I have an example of this in my own life. Every morning, I like love to eat eggs for breakfast. It's like my thing. It gets me off to a good day when I don't have my eggs. It's like something doesn't, you know, I'm not, it's not going good. So one morning I opened the fridge and noticed there were no eggs left. In fact, I think my husband had eaten the last egg. My two boys who are six and a half and three and a half are sitting there. And I recognize because I've been doing this for a while, like this is a really good moment to like talk through out loud what I'm experiencing because it wasn't good. Yeah. And <laughs> Right. And again, it's something so silly and so simple, but it like was very like, it's my morning. So I was like, oh, that's so frustrating. Like there are no eggs left. I really wish that there were some eggs. I'm going to take a deep breath and try to be flexible here. Again, I was just like verbalizing myself out loud, modeling how I was regulating from like a frustration to like, okay. Then the moment they didn't really say anything, but I noticed like, I think it was a week after where we didn't have pancakes and my older one wanted pancakes. And I heard him reverbalizing some of the things that I had modeled, like, okay, I can be flexible today. So when I think about this, it's in the moment and out of the moment, how can I model this, how I'm regulating myself, which means being in tune when you're dysregulated and how you're shifting so that you can teach your kids, not only in the moments that they are stressed, but they can, they can see it out of the moment. So how can we model emotional regulation for our kids? You just gave an example, and I'm thinking about all of the parents who grew up in a generation where, quite frankly, they got hit if they weren't behaving or yelling was a thing, threatening, right? So for the parents who were never modeled themselves how to regulate, what are the steps we can take to model emotional regulation for our kids? Yeah, this is such a good question. Any parent who wants to start this journey, I just give you so much, so much love. And I, I like accolades, accolades, whatever it is, just <laughs> that's so incredible that you are noticing that this is something that you want after just being modeled and that being your only experience. I grew up in a similar situation where this was not modeled for me. 
before you can model it and be that for your kids, you have to start the journey yourself. It has to be you doing it for you to then be able to embody it and use it in situations like I just mentioned. So the first thing that I would recommend to somebody starting this journey is to take stock of a day. Let's go through a day and to write down sort of what I said at the beginning, where am I noticing I am reacting in ways that that I don't want mostly, right? Is it during breakfast? Is it during school pickup? Is it when I get an email from my boss? Is it when someone cuts me off, right? What, what are those times of day? And then really, what am I feeling? Where am I feeling it? And what is the emotion? This, again, it sounds simple or like, why would I even need to do this? But it really is step one, noticing I am feeling something and something is happening in my body, right? I am, someone cut me off. I feel this rising, my jaw clenching. I'm angry. So where am I feeling it and what's the emotion? It's a good exercise. And then how do you address it? That is, I would say, that is the first step. And then the addressing it. I have like a four-step process that I bring clients through. And the first step is what I call freeze. I don't know if you've ever watched the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he like talks to the camera and everything around him freezes. I say, you're in this stressful moment, freeze. Ferris Bueller, everything around you can keep happening, you freeze. The second step is what I just said, feel. What am I feeling? Where am I feeling it? And again, in a stressful moment, this may be more heightened or harder than, oh, I'm just driving through my day or I got an email from a boss because there's other people involved, right? Step number three is what I like to say is diffuse. This is where I try to, in the moment, move to that window of tolerance, move towards that, I can handle this. And the first part is say something different to yourself. A lot of times we're having those racing thoughts of, this is so dysfunctional, no one listens to me, I have to do everything, something's going wrong here. I can cope with this. I can figure this out. It's going to be okay, right? I, I know based on child development, which is why I went through the Dan Siegel stuff, this can be normal. And then some body somatic experiencing. Peter Levine, he does. He he is a master. He he came up with somatic experiencing. This will be different for everyone. So if I suggest something here and you try it and it doesn't work, please try something else. I don't want anyone to think this is prescriptive, right? Or these are the only ways. In that moment, your body has a lot of energy. So we want to try to maybe expend the energy that isn't reacting or yelling, you know, doing that thing that you don't want to do. One of the things that you can do physically is clenching and unclenching your fists, like clenching really hard and unclenching. Something else you can do is a wall push-up, like you're pushing against the wall. The fourth step, right? So we have the diffuse is decide what do I, what do I need here? Which can go along with some of those physical exercises. And if you have kids who are older, Mommy's just going to take a moment. I need, I need a minute to myself. And then you can, again, go and you can do the wall push-ups. You can clench and unclench. You can play some like music. Again, music has a nice effect for the sensory system. You can watch something funny, a laugh. You may be thinking these things aren't realistic. It's a stressful moment. But what we're doing here is we want our kids to be able to be in the face of a stressful situation and be able to manage it, right? And shift their responses. 
that is the start, right? The blueprint of how we can do it. And a lot of my clients, what they'll do is be like, okay, Steph, I froze, I felt, and then I sort of, what do I do now? Decide? I don't know how I want to do. Do I want to speak to them in a different way? Like, how do I want to approach this? So that is normal. We're Again, we're not going to get, you're not going to listen to this podcast and implement all this and be like, there, I'm regulated. <laughs> like, I, I know my body's regulated yeah. now. This is an ongoing process. And a lot of times can start with out of the moment. I can bring one of you through something that I call orienting, if you would like, which is another nice thing to do. Not in the moment. Let's do it. So Peter Levine, again, this is Peter Levine's work, and I'm going to do something that's called orienting. And this really helps bring you to the present moment. Again, you may not do this in a situation that I described earlier with your kids, but if you're sitting down before to do work, or if you've just woken up. So, okay, who's going to do it? Which one of you? Marla. Okay. Okay. I'm all quite <laughs> ready to do it. Marla. Okay. So I want you to put your feet on the ground, flat on the ground. I want you to move your head and take a look around your room with some curiosity. And what do you notice as you're doing that? Um, do you want me to go through the items or? Well, what are your eyes drawn to? Probably my throw pillows, which are out of order. Uh, my plant, which needs to be watered, some Trader Joe's cookies, lots of stuff. <laughs> so as you're looking around you with curiosity and noticing those things, are your dry eyes drawn to anything that is pleasant? I have a window right in front of me and my eyes are drawn to the trees outside. How about you? Is there, is there anything in your environment that you're drawn to? Yeah, I feel like I have a lot of bright colors around the room and I also have windows over there. So I am always staring at them. So as you're looking out the window and your eyes are drawn to that, what are you noticing? I can see my neighbor's Halloween decorations. I can see a tree. I can see a, um, like a cable wire. And just take a second and focus on those things outside your window and let your eyes find a focal point. Okay. What's happening in your body as you're noticing? My feet came off the ground, actually. Yeah. And I feel like I'm actually tensing more. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, right? You're tensing more. What part of your body is tensing more? Uh, My knees are locking. Okay. And hands are a little sweaty. Well, it's just really interesting, right, to notice that, and it could be for many reasons. Maybe you're being put on the spot. Maybe, right, like this is, you've never done this before. So... I don't know if Mads and Erica, if you guys were doing this while Marla was doing it, were you? Did you notice similar things? Did you notice something different? I felt a little calmer. Like, yeah, I just felt like a little bit of unclenching. I don't know what like the hope was for the exercise, but maybe like a focus was useful for my brain. How about you, Erica? I noticed... That as my eyes were focusing, my head was feeling a little heavier, like almost like I needed to hold it up, but maybe my brain can't do two things at the same time. Yeah. So there is no like, right. And again, this is an experience that is so personal for everyone. And it's so interesting, Erica, what I would have you do if you try this again next time and your head feels heavy. Does it still feel heavy? No. 
I would have you put your head in your hands and your heel, the heels of your hands in your eye to support it and then see what happens. So orienting is essentially helping you regain some presence in the moment. And maybe the hope is for it to feel a little bit unclenched or a little bit more, which is why maybe doing this on your own without the, without being on <laughs> the recording spot, Marla. Recording for a podcast right now. I would just say, and again, it's so personal, maybe not. However, I have clients who do this as they're driving, right? Just noticing the trees, looking around. I do this when I wake up, before I pick up my phone. And again, it's just a small practice to bring you to the present moment. And when I'm focusing outside, it's the trees and the green, and I see it swaying. And for me, it brings this openness. So you can play around with it and try to figure out how does this work for me and anyone listening also. This is called orienting. And it's a way just to bring you to the present moment. So is that something you can do that whether you're in a tense moment or not in a tense moment, right? Yes. And I would start not in a tense moment. Got it. It's always harder to access, right? So that's why when I talk about like the regulation and how am I feeling right when I wake up? How am I feeling in not these intense moments just so I can start to figure out how, how it should feel when you're in the moment you can sort of tap back to that relaxation that you felt. Okay. Are there other exercises? Cause this was um, a question I've been sitting on since we were talking about sort of expanding that middle area, right? That building that resilience so that when you're in a tense moment, your body sort of remembers what it feels like, and it's not as hard to get there for you. Are there other exercises like meditation or do you give other sort of prescriptions around building that resilience so that when you're in the moment, maybe not necessarily it's easier to get there, but you get there. You have a plan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do. And again, a lot of these are really highly personal. So if I'm speaking about something here that doesn't work for you, that is okay. There are so many different things that can work for you. So one of the things that I also do is I talk about in the moment and out of the moment strategies. If there's a situation that is you're always reacting at every time I come home and I see this messy living room, it just like I react, right? We talk about, okay, out of the moment, what is a different way that I can approach or think about the situation? Like how can I take control here? Is it the understanding of, and again, it could be like so many different things. It could be like the mindset shift of I have a home with kids and my home is well loved. This is one of the things that one of my clients uses before she goes to bed at night. She used to clean everything. And she noticed I what she wasn't enjoying herself at all. She wasn't reading. She wasn't watching a show with her partner. She wasn't doing any of the things that she wanted to be doing. And we talked about what is your enough for going upstairs and recognizing, right? Because if she cleaned at 805, the next day it was going to look the exact same way. So she said, What is enough is that I clean the sink. The sink is empty. And what's on the floor, it will be fine, right? One day I will look back and there'll be no kids in the house and I'll recognize like it was a house well-loved. So when I talk about out of the moment, I'm having a conversation with a client and she's regulated. She is okay, we're having a conversation so she can access these different thoughts or narratives. Whereas in the moment, she is so activated that those thoughts, you know, someone said to her, hey, you know, don't worry, one day you'll look back. She'd be like, no, (laughs) like this is really triggering for me. So I talk about at the moment, it's um, what are these situations and how can I look at it a little bit differently? 
when we talk about in the moment, it's the recognition of that diffusing. It's like, what do I need right now? Do I need to leave the room? Do I need to like, and the idea is being a detective during this. I'll have clients who, you know, I tried this and it didn't work. So I'm not going to try it again. Well, this is a, let's be a detective. What did work? What didn't work? Instead of saying, I'm going to do this forever. I'm never doing it again. Another example, I had another client who she worked full time and on the weekend, she thought I have to be with my kids all the time. I'm not with them during the week as much. I need to be with them. That's what a good mom does. I'm not with them. But she was noticing that she was not showing up as the mom that she wanted. She was reacting. She was going to soccer practice and getting annoyed. And she wasn't having that quality time with them. So we talked about how about this Saturday? You just, you know, you stay home for those two hours just during soccer practice. She's like, I can't do that. It just gives me so much anxiety. I can't do it. Let's just be a detective. This one Saturday, you'll try it and we'll just see what happens. This does not have to be your new normal. She tried it and afterward she was, oh my gosh, they came home and I was so much more connected. I was such yep. a better mom because I had that time to myself to do what I wanted. Yeah. I love that. It- I feel like here you're talking too about how before it was um, more so the situation that was causing the tension, but sometimes our thoughts can cause the tension. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. I am someone with like a ton of anxiety. I grew up with a brother who was on the spectrum. So he was never and still is not emotionally regulated. Like it's, you know, highs, highs, lows, lows. And as a result of that, I think anxiety is also hereditary in my family. But I now in my adulthood, even though I'm not around that all the time, I'm finding I clench everything. Literally, my dentist told me I'm clenching my jaw too much. And I was like, what? What am I supposed to do about that? So the long way of saying, I feel like a lot of this is what you're the advice you're giving is starting with the body first and then working backwards. So I hold my tension in like my fists and my jaw. Are there any other points that we should be aware of where there's like that, those high intense clenching that you might not even realize you're doing it? That's such a good question. And Marla, I just want to really emphasize, yes, a huge part of, I pair the body with the mindset. So a huge part of what I do out at the moment, again, when people are regulated is work on, let's talk about what's happening here. Let's shift the narrative. How else can we think about this? But again, and the other huge part of that is the body. So both really go hand in hand to make some of these shifts that we really want to make. So I love that you're noticing where you are clenching. And you mentioned, do you feel any of that right now? Do you feel any clenching anywhere in particular right now? I'm feeling decently relaxed right now because I love podcasting, but still jaw. Like I can feel there. And then my what I was saying before during the orienting exercise is like my knees locking that type of thing. So yeah. Yeah. If you were my client and we weren't on a podcast ahead of time, I would bring you more through that. So even noticing with the jaw offering, you could put your shoulders on the table, offering your jaw some support and just noticing what happens without the purpose. And again, I don't have um, a preconceived notion here that it should feel better or worse. We just want to notice like what happens. It kind of shifts it back into other areas. Yeah. What area? My hands. Okay. What do you notice in your hands? It's just like 
taking the burden off or I don't know, like taking the weight off a little bit. Is there an impulse associated with it? Like if we weren't on a podcast right now where you could do anything that you wanted to do. <laughs> I just want to take my hands off. I don't know why. I thought yeah, yeah. 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 You could take them off. Okay. And what happens? What do you notice when you take them off? It feels lighter. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like I'm failing all of these tests. You are not. You are not. There's no it's winning like and failing. In me where I'm like, I gotta do this therapy exercise perfectly. <laughs> I feel like the goal is feeling, right? It's just feeling. There's no like, oh, I should feel better. And again, that's not the way that we want to approach this at all. One of the things I would also recommend too is noticing when you're feeling some of this tension for me, it comes in my chest and like it moves up is what is the impulse here? What is the impulse? If I, again, were, could do anything and is it crying? Is it screaming? Is it having a tantrum? And again, this is like sort of going into knowing, like taking a second and recognizing, is it throwing things? Like what is that impulse? And being able to visualize again with support, supporting your body with a hand. You can see my hand on my chest. Can I visualize myself completing that impulse? Do I like cry, that crying or that t- whatever that is? And then noticing how your body feels after. Because again, we have this energy and a lot of us are in front of our computers. We're, we're not expelling, you know, maybe we're working out, but like we're not expelling the energy in ways yeah. that 30, 40 years ago you would have, yeah. you know, that we were. I admit my fantasy in that moment, like what I want to do. Have you heard of those retreats where you go into a cave for two or three days? It's dark. You have no light. That seems like an, a nightmare to me. They're called darkness retreats. Yes. Oh. And I am on the waiting list of like 900, which my husband laughs He's like, you can you can go into a cave. Like, you don't need to pay to go into a cave. <laughs> I'm like, no, I do. They bring me three meals. They make sure I'm safe. She really just wants to be taken care yes. of in a dark room with 100%. no one around her. Yes, that's exactly it. So in those moments, I want to crawl into the cave. And that is like my emotional regulation desire. Wait, so I love that. So what I want you to do the next time is to support your body where you're feeling that tenseness or that whatever that is, right? Your stomach, if it's your stomach, putting your hands on your stomach and to visualize the cave, to visualize the cave, the darkness, if there's anyone there with you, if there's a blanket, if you're by yourself, to visualize it and notice if anything shifts for you. Or I don't know if you... um. If you um, have like a, or have been to an infrared sauna or like a sauna blanket. Yeah. You have one of those. Just sold it. But yes, I do have access to a sauna. If even like your note, it, like if that need is going into the infrared sauna or even like under a yeah, blanket. Yeah, just like being in darkness in my closet, like with the walls around me. Yes. So first visualizing it in that moment and seeing what happens and then noticing, do I just need five minutes in a closet with my, yes. and letting yourself do it. A lot of us are, you know, I'm busy. I have to email. I, I don't have time for this, but again, being the detective and noticing if I try it this one time, do I notice a physical shift? What do I notice? I love that. And I think until this conversation, I didn't realize, but I think I've been pursuing elements of that. So like 
I have the earplugs that I just rebought last week. Like that you, they're called like loop engage earplugs where you're, you're like still with your family. You can still hear them, but it blocks out noise. And then like having complete darkness in my room when I sleep and things like that, just like creating more space in our days. Like if like to create more time so that like the pressure and the overstimulation isn't so vast and like peaceful music in the car and less talking and things like that. So I almost am realizing that I'm like pursuing less in those moments. I love that realization. And I would challenge you to ask yourself, how can I incorporate this a little bit more? And, and maybe not meaning not meaning time, like for 40 minutes, but is there five minutes at a certain part of my day that instead of answering those emails or flipping out the laundry or emptying the sink that I can do that again for five or 10 minutes and just see what happens, see the shift afterwards before school pickup or, you know, something along those lines. How can I incorporate it a little bit more during the day? So you mentioned somatic experiences and I have been getting targeted and I'm so interested in this but I haven't really understood what it was. I'm getting targeted for like somatic workouts, but all of the videos are of these women in positions crying. So I have not pursued it, but it's very interesting to me because they talk about sort of like you said, like releasing this stored up energy inside and maybe the crying is the way it's coming out. And that's okay where I would look at crying as that looks painful and not something that I would enjoy. So I'm not going to pursue it, but I, it has been really intriguing for me. So I'm curious your thoughts on somatic experiencing and somatic workouts. Like, what does that mean? Um, I honestly have never heard of a somatic workout and I'm going to Google it right after this. And I think that's so interesting. The messaging is so important is that we have this stored up energy. We have this stored up feeling in our body that isn't going anywhere. It isn't going anywhere. So in that moment, when we're feeling frustrated with our kids and we're like, oh, that yelling, it feels good because it's a release. We're like, for that moment, it feels like we've like, yes, because I've released this thing that's being pent up. And then there's a guilt and the shame. And we realize that's not how we want to parent all the things, but we're recognizing we, this needs to be released somehow. And how can I release it? And I would say a lot of people like, but I work out. That's different. Yes, the dopamine, we feel good, but it's not the releasing of this physical need that we have. So when I talk about the wall push-ups, right, or the clenching and unclenching, or I'm not sure if you've heard of a of, of view, like the sound. No. So it's like, um, <laughs> don't know if it may sound weird, but essentially it's like finding this like, this like engine like vooing, this like, let me see if I get it. that like from the the chest and it like vibrates you a little vibrates even just the booing even feels so good even when i do it right now i'm like i should keep going like it feels good for the body but the expending getting this energy out somehow so when you visualize yourself it is a way of and if if erica if the crying isn't something that you would do to release the energy. It's again, sitting with yourself in a moment, asking, 
what is that thing that maybe wouldn't be societally acceptable <laughs> to do right now, but I would really want to do. And you have that impulse and, and the visualization yeah. and, and the crying. Yeah. Yeah. I have clients who it is, you know, and for in different situations for myself as well. It just is like this release. Yeah. A coach the other day uh, was talking me through rest and the shame around rest and what you were saying, Erica and Stephanie made me think of that. Like when you said, if you want to do something that's like society would not want you to do right now or whatever, or you were saying like, try to pursue going into that closet, like in the moment, she and I were talking about how I have some shame and guilt around rest, especially when like my partner is like buzzing around cleaning the house and I'm just like laying on my bed reading my book and how I'm wanting to do that. But I'm also feeling guilty. Like, should I go help him with the dishwasher? I don't really want to do that. And how like women need more rest and we need rest at certain times of the month and like to not have shame around pursuing that rest or that thing that we need. That's such a good point because everything that we're talking about today too requires the ability to put yourself first and what you need first and take that time or that rest or that time off from doing that thing that you think that you should be doing in order to achieve this. And again, the way better serve, right? And again, it's like the way that I talk about it is like, if we can do this and model it for our kids and they will have the opportunity to do the same. So it is vital. It is important. That's the way that I talk about it with parents, but it should just be important because we want to feel better. It should just be important because we're important, not because we want to be better for our kids, but because we matter and we want to live a better life and a life where we're not buzzing around. But I, the shame and the guilt, it's so normal. I hear it from so many clients. I experience it's something I work through with myself. But the recognition that I am more important than these other things. And that's the model that I want to be for my family. That's the leader that I want to be in my family. And even be able, being able to have the conversation with your husband about, I know I do this too. Like my husband will be like cleaning up the kitchen at night and I'm just like sitting and relax. It doesn't mean I don't help him participate. I'm like, this is my time to relax. Like everyone's in bed. This is like my, yeah, totally. And part of that is you knowing I am like, I contribute to this family. I do like I do enough. I don't need to do more to prove that I do enough. So by you knowing that, I have an example with my husband. And I don't cook a lot. It's just like not my thing right now. And he'll be the one to cook more often. And he asked me, it was like a couple months ago. He's like, hey, so Steph, what do you think about you cooking more? Right. And he didn't say it in a way that was offensive, you know, but I was like, I had two options in that moment. I could oh my gosh, I am a terrible mom and wife because I'm not cooking even though I have the time. I'm not providing my family with these meals that they should be having. Or I could recognize I do enough. I do a lot for this family. One day, maybe I'll cook more. Right now, I don't have the capacity and like that's okay. So me being okay with what I am doing as is right now helps me to be able to communicate that with him. And again, he's not, he may not have been like, yes, awesome. I don't also, my goal in life or my job isn't to make him happy. Yes. Okay, Stephanie, I think this will be our last question. You mentioned sort of a hot take about parenting tips on social media when we talked. Can you tell us your thoughts there? The social media space is just so overwhelming with parenting tips. My personal take is that there's too much info 
And it's placing unrealistic expectations on parents that they need to be child psychologists or they need to say things in a perfect way and and perfect parenting, which in and of itself, you can't be a perfect parent. I think it creates so much guilt and shame, especially when parents try these strategies and they don't work. Again, it's not all terrible. And again, I think there's so much information which can be helpful, but I think we're just in an age of over-information. So if you are listening and you are following all the people and thinking that you are doing a great job and that you don't need these parenting experts tips, you don't need my tip, right? You don't need these to be okay. Like you're a good mom. So that's just sort of my hot take on the, on the parenting tips. I think there's just too much information out there and too much competing information. Parents don't need to be child psychologists. Great. That's amazing. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. This was an important conversation. I think every single one of our listeners can relate and appreciate your tips. For our listeners, Stephanie's website and ways to get in touch with her are linked in our show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to help us reach more working moms, please rate us where you listen to podcasts. On Apple Podcasts, just scroll to the bottom of the app, hit the five stars, or subscribe to our Working Mom, our YouTube channel. Thanks again. This was so good. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Thank you. I was thinking this was the way to go And you put up your puppet show I say cheers to life No, I'll be no good man Just leave me alone I'm on the show